that true peace is not dependent upon a change in circumstance. These Christians, they're living in Ephesus, and it's not a Christian city. It's a pagan city. And the Ephesians, like I said already, like they have built a, a, an entire city uh, with a culture you know, centered around the worship of Artemis. This is not an easy place to follow Jesus. It's not a place that would have been very welcoming to Christianity. And, and despite all of this, what we find is that, is that these early Christians in Ephesus, they're still figuring out how to thrive. They're still figuring out how to follow Jesus in, in, in spite of everything going on around them. And they're not dependent on a changing culture. They're not dependent on a change in government. They're not a, a dependent on a change in policy in order to be at peace. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Like, in other words, that the, the peace isn't meant to rule externally around us in our circumstances, but that it's meant to rule internally within our hearts. That's what peace is meant to do. It's meant to still be available and accessible and unchangeable even when the circumstances around you are not what you would prefer. And this is why Paul and Silas, you know, are, are at peace in, in Acts chapter 16 when they're in prison. You read that story and you find that they are, they are imprisoned and they're at midnight, they're worshiping God. They're singing in prison. I mean, they are, they are in the midst of a circumstance that they would, they would not have asked for, right? They, they would have preferred to not be arrested and thrown in prison, but their circumstance has not altered their peace because their peace is not built on their circumstances. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, good to be together again this week. Uh, we are in week four of our summer teaching series, The Good Fight, uh, which is a, a summer teaching series where we are learning, teaching, and growing through the book of 1 Timothy together. Um, some of the heart, some of the thought behind the series is just that, you know, with all of the conflict that we feel around us, and how many of y'all know there's a lot, uh, everywhere we look, there's conflict. We wondered, you know, what if we, what if we spent the summer really coming together, learning, uh, how to stop fighting fights that maybe we were never meant to be in. Like, what if, what, if we, what if we came together to learn how to stop fighting unwinnable battles uh, that are around us everywhere we look, and instead, maybe a better use of our time would be to come together to learn how to fight the good fight, how to fight the fight of faith, the fight that we are called to, where we can learn together how to remain faithful to Jesus and his gospel in the midst of, you know, so much opposition in adversity to our faith. It feels like culture, you know, is, is just uh, increasingly uh, encroaching upon, uh, you know, uh, many of our faith values, and, and it can be very disorienting and, and difficult to know, like, you know, how do you live? How do you function? How do you operate with all that is going on around us uh, today in, uh, in our dominant culture? And so I want to kind of teach and push into that some more uh, in week four here today as, as we go ahead and get started. So on August 27th, 1883, uh, there was a volcanic explosion that was 10 times more powerful than the atomic bomb, and it tore apart the Indonesian island of Krakatoa. Some of you might be familiar with this story in history, um, if you're a history buff or you've, you've read or heard about it, but apparently people heard the explosion from as far away as Saigon, Bangkok, uh, even Manila, and as far south as Perth, Australia. Uh, the story goes that, uh, that churchgoers on nearby islands surrounding Krakatoa all thought they were living in the last days. Uh, they all thought that Armageddon had finally happened, right? I mean, this was a massive event. If you think about how far away people are hearing the explosion, let alone seeing the explosion, it was a big, big, big deal. And 
And so what's always been interesting to me about this story is, is that the, the impact of this explosion wasn't just isolated to the region of Southeast Asia. Like, like the entire planet was impacted by the effects of this explosion. There were reports that came in of, you know, people around the world seeing dramatic sunsets, you know, people uh, talking about strange phenomena filling the sky. Uh, there, there were even those who said that it looked like the entire sky was on fire. I mean, this is, this is a big deal 140-some years ago, right, going on in the world. And so as, as news of this explosion spread around the world, the global population was fascinated by it. Now, you've got to keep in mind that at the time, this was, this was the height, uh, the world was at the height of the Industrial Revolution. And so a rapid growth in technology, uh, unlike the world had ever seen, had really elevated belief in human ability. It had elevated belief in human potential, human power, human achievement. And so perhaps for the first time ever in human history, humanity was, was beginning to feel as if nature had finally been tamed. Like if they'd finally overcome nature. And so this explosion in Krakatoa, this volcanic eruption that was, I mean, it was, it was, it was enormous, right? And it shocked everybody. Uh, considering, you know, the time that they're living in, it shocked everybody and it left the world in awe. And shortly afterwards, um, you know, the, the modern age returned to being frightened again. Uh, they had a healthy fear once again of nature. They were reminded of the limits of human ability and the untamable reality of nature. I mean, all of these people uh, are, are, are once again reminded of ju- just, uh, you know, that they aren't in control. Right, And so uh, they were shocked that in an instant, in a moment, in a blink of an eye, like the island of Krakatoa could be, uh, could be changed forever, and, uh, and they just didn't really know what to do with that. I tell you that story because I think that for many of us, this is what the world feels like right now. If you think about the pandemic, if you think about all the changes in culture, you think about the political polarization and the racial division and even the advancements in technology, all the stuff going on, it seems like all of these things have sort of worked together to rapidly alter the world that we live in at a breakneck speed. You know, I don't think, I don't think very many of us in here are, are disillusioned um, or naive to the fact that the world has changed. I think we all understand that the world has changed, but it's the speed of that change that has left a lot of people disoriented. It's like it's happened so incredibly fast. And so I just think that similar to the world in 1883, like we too are sensing you know, uh, all the chaos in the world. Like, we're, we're feeling this sense of chaos around us in the world. It's, 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 it's dominant. It's, it's everywhere you look. And we, are too, like those in 1883, are being reminded that we are not as, in much, control, as much in control as maybe we thought uh, we were. So interestingly enough, you know, uh, seven weeks after this explosion on Krakatoa, this um, Dutch colonial engineer and a small team of his, they they departed for Krakatoa, and when they arrived, they found that the, that the form and the shape of the physical island itself had changed. Uh, that which was, you know, solid at one point had slipped into the sea. I mean, two of its mountain peaks, you know, vanished entirely. I mean, talk about, like, like utter devastation to this island. I mean, they, they got there, and they explored, and they realized, like, this, like something bad has happened, Right? But the further they explored, they found that the small part of the island had actually began to grow. Like, they, they were blown away by it. They're, they're like, they're, they couldn't believe that in the midst of, you know, all of, 
all of this, you know, all the chaotic mess of, of volcanic rock and ash and all of this stuff that like, that like the island had actually began to grow. And all of a sudden there began to be hope that the island was not entirely obliterated. You know, that, that there was something there under the surface. There began to be hope that uh, an optimism rising that life could potentially return to Krakatoa again someday. And, and I give you that story. I open with that today because, because I really, I really want to launch from this thought um, uh, today, if, if you're taking notes, because I, I believe that it is often the case that the place that feels like destruction, mayhem, and death is the moment just before rebirth. It's what you see in this story going on in Krakatoa, that there's something still living. There's something under the surface, underneath the chaotic mess of volcanic rock and ash is, is something still alive, something that is, that, is, that is coming to life again. And I don't know uh, all of your stories, and I don't know exactly you know, the, the context you know, of, of your life in terms of, of what you brought with you today, but I know that there are, there are many of us who experience times of just uh, devastation, times of difficulty, times of struggle. And I think what, what the statement is really trying to, to communicate is that what looks like hopelessness is not hopelessness. And that what looks like destruction is not destruction. There, that there are things that God is doing under the surface that we can't always see. That there is life, there is something God is trying to birth through uh, and, and, and see breakthrough, uh, you know, the, the, the surface that we struggle to see at times. And we struggle to have faith to look look beneath the surface, don't we? Like, like we know this in our minds and we know what the scripture says. We know that you know, God gives us hope no matter what we're facing, but sometimes we can struggle to look beneath the surface and have faith that there is something good that's ready to emerge. And I think that a lot of the reason for that is because you know, we are just living at a time where the world and especially our country is, is maybe more divided than it has ever been in our lifetime, you know? Like, it can feel like we're living in two separate countries. Have you ever noticed that or felt that, the tension of that reality? Right versus left, red versus blue, you know, uh, conservative, liberal, whatever it is. I don't know where you get your news. Um, hopefully you don't get it from anywhere these days. But, but uh, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but, you know, I, I've done this before where I'll turn Fox on, I'll watch a little bit of Fox, and then watch for a while, and then I'll, I'll flip over to CNN, watch for a little while. And my takeaway, it'll feel like I just got news from two entirely different countries. And we, and, and you know, I don't really, you know, that's not to pick a side at all. Like, I don't, you know, I don't really care where you'll get your news. But I, I think that, I think what it reveals to us is that we, we, are, we are a deeply, deeply divided nation along cultural and ideological lines. It's, 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 it's really disheartening to look at. And I remember uh, shortly after the election of President Biden, a pastor that I follow on, on, on Twitter, he, he wrote this, uh, tweeted this out, and I thought it was really profound um, his name's Michael Ware. He said, here's what I'm sure of after yesterday. We cannot continue to live as if half the country does not exist. Cannot continue to live as if half the country does not exist. And I think this is just the reality that we find ourselves living in, you know? Like, it's, it's no small stretch to say that, you know, it's the divided states of America in some sense. And I bring all that up and go just a little political, which I never do. Because I just want you to understand, like, like my concern isn't so much with all of that. My concern is that that... that Spirit of division has like bled its way into the church. And, and I think that's why we talk about it. You know, like, like this isn't a platform for me to just, you know, go, go super political on you. But I, I, think, I think when what is going on out there starts to seep its way into the church and bleed its way into the church, we got, we got trouble. And so uh, it can be very, very disillusioning, can be very disorienting for us to, 
to live in times like this as Christian people because we go like, how, how, do, you, how do you respond? How do you live in light of this? How do you, how do you still follow Jesus in, in a world that is rapidly changing? What, what do you do? If, if you're taking notes, I want you to, to catch this thought that I think sort of, sort of explains what I think maybe, maybe some of us feel, and it's this right here. The confusion we feel in times like these makes it difficult for us to understand how to live, how to behave, and how to respond to all of this. Because I don't know if you've ever felt like, man, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to be put in this situation. We didn't ask to live in the environment that we're in and to see everything shift and change. And it can be very, you know, disorienting because you're going like, I don't know as a Christian man or as a Christian woman how to live, how to behave, how to respond to all of the stuff going on around me. And the good news is that the purpose of 1 Timothy, if you remember, which is what we're, we're learning and studying you know, all summer long, the purpose of 1 Timothy is to really show the church how they ought to function and how they ought to behave in the midst of so much opposition to their faith. You've got to remember that, that the setting for 1 Timothy, it, it all takes place in, a city, in the city of Ephesus, which, which is a place that would have been you know, very sinful, very pagan. Uh, you know, uh, it was an environment or a culture that would not have been very welcoming to Christianity at the time. I mean, it, it was built around the, around the, the, the worship of, of the, the goddess Artemis, if, if you remember us talking about that a couple weeks ago. And, and so Paul writes to Timothy and he instructs these Christians living in this kind of environment how to handle themselves. That's what 1 Timothy is. He writes to the church and he, he says that there is a proper way for the church to function, that there is a proper way for the people of God to live in a world like this. And it's not much different than the world we find ourselves in now. And so that's how you got to frame up 1 Timothy. It's, it's instruction on how to live. How the, as a church, it's a proper way for us to function, how to handle ourselves, how to behave, how to live, how to respond in times like these that we're living in right now. Because I, I hope you understand and know that like, there's, the church is supposed to offer like a different way. You know? Like, like a different path. Like, like, we respond differently, you know, to what is happening in our lives personally and what is happening in the world and in our culture. We respond differently. We do not respond the way, you know, most people do. We respond differently. And so we see Paul write this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, some things that, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to think about it, but it's in the Bible, and so, you know, I'm not making it up. So, uh, you know, uh, here we go. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, I urge then first of all, of first importance, right, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, a testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Don't you love that Paul, Paul makes, it, makes it clear? He's not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So these are some interesting scriptures to look at. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he's telling them how the church ought to function. He says, of first importance, you know, these requests, these prayers, these intercessions, these thanksgivings, like, hey, it needs to be made for everyone. 
Like we don't, we don't just pray for like some people. There aren't, there aren't people out there in the world that like, man, they've been so bad that they're, they're undeserving of our prayer, right? He says like, no, no, no. Like the way the church functions is we pray for all men, everyone, for kings and those in authority is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I just got a thought for you if you're taking notes. I think that so much of our purpose as Christians is to let Jesus' vision of peace break into this cultural moment through us. Jesus has a vision of peace. And his vision of peace looks different than maybe even some of our own visions of peace. Certainly the vision of peace that we see around us in uh, the dominant culture. Did you know that peace is one of the central themes of the Bible? The Bible opens with peace, and the Bible closes with peace, and between the opening and the closing of the Bible is God trying to break in and bring peace. And so it's, it's significant. And as Christians, we're not supposed to just have this thin understanding of peace that hinges on everything breaking our way. We're to have a robust understanding of peace where there is this vision of life, of whole life flourishing with God for us, our families, our friends, our society. This is the kind of peace that God is talking about from cover to cover in your Bible, and it's called shalom. It's called shalom. And Jesus calls his followers to create peace, to create shalom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 famously says these words in the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The peacemakers. I like the New Living Translation that says, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Now, these are tough. Like, these are tough little, like, one-liners. Like, what do you do with this? Like, how does this apply to me now? Like, in 2022 and how I live my life as a Jesus follower today. Like, these are tough. And I think what we have to be careful of is to not dismiss this beatitude as just a simple little platitude from a time and place that, you know, has no power now in a moment like this. It's like, well, that's like, that's something from back then, 2,000 years ago. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, that, how, how do you take something, you know, from the dusty trails of first century Israel and like, and like bring it into the here and now like, and apply it to what we're, what we're going through? And we can feel that disconnect at times. And I, I'm encouraging you to be careful to just dismiss this and, 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 and because, because you're not entirely sure how to apply it. There is so much power in this statement, so much power in choosing to be a peacemaker, so much power in choosing to be a bringer of shalom. You think about those listening to Jesus in Matthew 5, those on the hill, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Man, these people would have had an entirely different vision of peace at the time. An entirely different vision of peace. Oh, they would have wanted peace, but their vision, their idea of peace would have been entirely different than like Jesus' idea of peace. Remember that these people he's, he's speaking to, they are under the oppression of Rome, Right? Their, their, their idea of peace would have been one that was brought through military power, right? They, they, they would have wanted something very similar to the Maccabean revolt that I've talked about a couple times and, and told you the story on that 100 years before Jesus was born, like the Jews were under the oppression of the Hasmonean dynasty. You guys remember, remember some of the story where like, you know, the temple had been, had been desecrated. They, they had outlawed uh, 
you know, circumcision, which was an um, um, like enormously important part of, of like the Jewish faith at the time. And, uh, and so they were under the oppression of the Hasmoneans. And then a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, like he decides he's pretty much had enough. Right? And him and, and, and some of his buddies, like they're completely outnumbered, but they, they rise up and they, they actually succeed and they overthrow the Hasmoneans and they go back and, and uh, they, they, they consecrate the temple once again through with you know, Judas Maccabeus. He walks into the temple with the, uh, the jar of oil and, and he, he cleanses the temple. And then, and then the oil that was left over, remember he lights the candles and it was only supposed to be enough to light the candles for two days. He ends up, it ends up that the candles last for eight days, and that's, that's why they celebrate Hanukkah. That's where they get the eight days. And so, like, it's a ma- this is a massive story in the history of, of the Israelites, of, of, of the Jewish people. And, and, and so you got to understand, like, 100 years later, they're living in oppression that is similar. And they want peace. They want freedom. And they're looking for a leader similar to somebody like Judas Maccabeus, somebody in their not-too-distant past to rise up and to, and to be that leader who will help them overthrow Rome. And they thought Jesus was going to be this kind of man. And, and so you got to understand that the climate of the day was politically charged. It was violently motivated. People were longing for an overthrow of Rome, longing to establish their own kingdom of peace once again, which is what happened after you know, the Maccabean revolt where they, they gained their freedom and then they, they established their kingdom and, their, and they, they were able to rule themselves. They wanted this to happen once again. And so this is the setting where Jesus is, is in, in Matthew 5, he, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount to these people on this hillside, and they do not understand that this is not the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. Like, like he's talking, hey, let's, let's be peacemakers. You know, like, like, let's work for peace. And immediately in their minds, they would have had an idea that would have been entirely different than the idea that Jesus had. Imagine, imagine Jesus getting up and saying, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, that would have, that would have like energized some of them. Be like, yeah, let's, let's go do this. They would have projected so much of their own understanding and desires onto these words, onto what they thought peacemaking was. And I think that interestingly enough, we too can tend to project our own ideas about peace onto these words of Jesus as well. I think we can do the same thing. And we can assume that he's talking about something that he's not. And we can think of, of peace this way. Usually we, when we think of peace, we think of it like this if you're taking notes. We think of it as cultural peace. I mean, this, is like, this is like if you ever watch one of those beauty pageants and those contestants are getting interviewed and they're like, hey, what do you, what do you want to accomplish? And they're like, world peace. You know, like, like, you know, like, like that's ever a possibility. But cultural peace is it's basically the absence of conflict. So it's the elimination of all wars and conflict in the world. And like, let's have world peace. Or, but, but this is usually what, what people think when they talk about peace. It's an elimination or it's the absence of conflict. It's a vision of peace that basically says, if I get rid of the problems and the power structures, then there will finally be peace. And the entire motive behind cultural peace is to remove the source of agitation and conflict, the parts of it that you don't like. Jonathan Haidt is an American social psychologist, and he put forth a concept for how peace is established, contending that there are two kinds of peace that exist. The first one, he said, was common humanity justice, which maybe some of you have heard of this before. And this is where we are working uh, together. We're trying to work together as a society on the problems that affect all of us. So as, as a human race, there are problems that affect all of us. 
the kind of justice that exists in, in, uh, you know, throughout history in every redemptive society, you know, common humanity justice. It's a vision for stopping legitimate evil and oppression. And, you know, I think, I think we're all on the same page. Like, let's end that stuff. This is common humanity justice. This is when people come together around these kinds of common things to stop the issues and, and establish peace through these kinds of efforts. Interestingly, though, hate says that the main problem with our modern society is, is something different. It's what he calls common enemy identity politics. This, this is the bigger issue right now. And this is where peace is achieved only by, hear, hear me, it's only by ident- identifying an enemy, def- defining yourself as a victim, and then living in opposition to that enemy. And he, said, he says that the problem is that you don't have a vision for what you want. You only have a vision of what you're against. And it only leads to what he called dehumanization and demonization. And, uh, and I, think, I think that that is a more clear picture of kind of what we see going on around us all the time. Common enemy identity politics. If we can just remove the enemy, then we'll finally be at peace. Well, Nelson Mandela, a man who might have known a few things about this type of of, of thing. Um, he said this, he said, when we dehumanize and demonize our opponents, we abandon the possibility of peacefully resolving our differences and seek to justify violence against them. I don't know, I don't know what, what you think, but I, it feels to me like the type of peace that is achieved through the removal of, of uh, any and every threat is really the only kind of peace that is pushed in culture today and it's tough like it's tough to live in a time like this especially as a Christian because when we read first Timothy like Paul tells us that the church if you're taking notes is to pray for all men that we are to pray for all men this is what is how he instructs the church in Ephesus I mean they're living in a pretty wild environment like, it's, it's, it's so anti-anything Christianity would have stood for at that time. And, and Paul writes them and gives them this instruction on how the church is to function. And he says, hey, you're to pray for all men. Of first importance, when it comes to the church, Paul says, is to make sure that you're praying for all men from the emperor all the way down. Kings and all of those in authority. Early Christians were often accused of seeking to undermine Rome because they claimed a higher Lord than Caesar. But it wasn't true. Even though their allegiance was first and foremost to Jesus, they sought to support Rome by being good citizens and by praying for the emperor, not to the emperor. This is a big thing that distinguished them. You know, like, like hey, we're not, we're not against everybody, but what distinguished them is that, is that they didn't worship Caesar. They prayed for him, not to him. And Paul tells us that we are to pray for those in authority. We are to pray for all men. And I don't, I don't mean to get, get super, uh, uh, make things super difficult on you, but I, I think it's important to ask the question, when was the last time, you know, we prayed for our president? You know? Prayer is one of the primary ways we can keep our hearts clean, Prayer is one of the primary ways we keep our hearts from demonizing people who are made in the image of God. It's one of the primary ways. That's what Paul understands and it's what Paul knows. 
He says, like, don't forget to pray for all men, from kings all the way down, from the emperor all the way down. Include them all in your prayers. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said these words. He says, it's amazing the violence people will commit in the name of peace. It's amazing the hate people will show in the name of love. And it's amazing the oppression people will exert in the name of justice. Really big thought of the day, if you're taking notes. And it's this. In our desire for peace, which I think we all want, Jesus' followers must embody another way to get there. In our desire for peace, Jesus' followers must embody another way to get there. So there is cultural peace, right? Which is, which is really only found through the removal of conflict, the removal of people who don't think like you and act like you and behave like you and have the same values of you that you have. And then there is, is what I think, I think Jesus is going after and what the Apostle Paul is going after. It's what we want to call kingdom peace. It's different. And kingdom peace requires the presence of something, not just the removal of something or the absence of conflict. Kingdom peace requires the presence of something. It's, it's the presence of God, right? Like we're not just out to remove conflict, but we are bringing the kingdom of God as well. It's the presence of the kingdom of God. James chapter 3 James writes these words, he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I love this last line, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You notice where all of this comes from. James writes, he says, the wisdom that comes from heaven This is the wisdom that comes from heaven. It's peace-loving. And I want you to just just think for a moment, okay, because we're we're spending our summer in 1 Timothy, and we're talking about how how the church is is supposed to function and operate in the midst of really a a, a very pagan culture. And, And remember that Paul is telling these people in Ephesus to pray for those in leadership, to pray for those in authority, and then and then he says to live peaceful and quiet lives. That's pretty wild. If you're taking notes, we are to live peaceful lives. We are to live peaceful lives. But what does that mean? Real simple. Peaceful means full of peace. It's real simple. To be peaceful means that you are a person who is full of peace. Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes to the church in Colossae and he says, Uh, In verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If you're taking notes, true peace is not dependent on a change in circumstance. That's what Paul's getting getting across here. That true peace is not dependent upon a change in circumstance. These Christians, they're living in Ephesus. And it's not a Christian city. It's a pagan city. And the Ephesians, like I said already, they have built an entire city uh, with a culture 
you know, centered around the worship of Artemis. And we talked a couple weeks ago about even just the temple of Artemis was like at the hub of the city and that it has, you know, been remembered as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, like enormous, four times larger than the Pantheon in, in Athens. I mean, it was, it was a sight to behold. It would have been a massive architectural achievement in their day. Enormous. This is what is happening in Ephesus. This is not an easy place to follow Jesus. It's not a place that would have been very welcoming to Christianity. And, and despite all of this, what we find is that, is that these early Christians in Ephesus, they're still figuring out how to thrive. They're still figuring out how to follow Jesus in, in, in spite of everything going on around them. And they're not dependent on a changing culture. They're not dependent on a changing government. They're not a, a dependent on a change in policy in order to be at peace. They're not dependent on Ephesus becoming a Christian culture in order to be at peace because for them, their peace is not circumstantial. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Like, in other words, the, the, the peace isn't meant to rule externally around us in our circumstances, but that it's meant to rule internally within our hearts. That's what peace is meant to do. It's meant to still be available and accessible and unchangeable even when the circumstances around you are not what you would prefer. And this is why Paul and Silas, you know, are, are at peace in, in Acts chapter 16 when they're in prison. You read that story and you find that they are, they are imprisoned and they're at midnight, they're worshiping God. They're singing in prison. I mean, they are, they are in the midst of a circumstance that they would, they would not have asked for, right? They, they would have preferred to not be arrested and thrown in prison, but their circumstance has not altered their peace because their peace is not built on their circumstances. It's in spite of their circumstances that they are at peace. And there's many more stories like this you can read in the Old Testament. You know, you can read about Daniel in Babylon. You can read about Joseph in Egypt, and there's many more, all of these guys working for the success of a foreign and a pagan empire. But there's not just Old Testament examples. There's New Testament examples as well. And I want you to look at this thought if you're taking notes. Isn't it interesting how both Jesus and Paul don't advocate for changing or overthrowing the government? Instead, they teach how to live within the governmental system in such a way that the kingdom of heaven can still come. Like, isn't, isn't it interesting, like, this is their approach? This is their approach. Let me, let me just show you. Luke chapter 4 is an incredible story, incredibly famous. And in, in Luke 4, we see Jesus, uh, right after his baptism, which is... Which is uh, uh, you know, enormously, you know, famous event in his life. Immediately after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by Satan. And it's, it, it's what happens right before his ministry starts. So in Luke 4, Jesus has gone, he's been baptized, and he has gone into the wilderness, and he's really going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil for 40 days. He's fasting for, for that period of time, so his flesh is weak. He's relying on, on the, the Spirit of God, which has descended upon him at his baptism, and it says in, in, in verse 5 that the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. What's interesting to notice about this story is that Jesus doesn't argue with him. Jesus knows that the authority has been given to the devil. 
He knows what took place in the garden. He knows that authority was, uh, was handed over in the garden to, to the devil. Jesus isn't questioning whether or not he actually has the authority to give to him. He knows. This is why, this is part of the mission, the reason why Jesus has come to earth in the first place was to take back authority. That's why when Jesus leaves, you know, you know uh, in, in, in Matthew 28, as he gets ready to ascend into heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me. Like he's taking it back. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he's come on a mission to retake authority. But in Luke 4, like he doesn't have the authority yet. The devil has the authority. And, and he provides Jesus like, like a, an easier path to that authority. He, he provides him an opportunity to, to take a shortcut to what he came here to do. And all he has to do is bow down and worship the devil. And Jesus refuses to do so. Verse 7, the devil says, so if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know, I, this isn't really in, in my notes at all, but I, I just thought this, you know, it, um, see if I can make sense of this. I, I think that, that uh, it's really important as we're living as Christians, like, how many of y'all know, like, it's important to, like, know the Bible maybe better than your enemy? And, like, Jesus, like, like he... I mean, what gets him through this time of like deep temptation is he knows what the word says. And he knows it better than his enemy knows it. And the enemy offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and this includes the Roman Empire, by the way. But when Jesus is given the opportunity, opportunity to overthrow Rome with force, to be given a greater authority than them, and then to over, overthrow them, he turns it down. And then you see at the end of Jesus' life, at the end of his ministry, when he is face to face with Pilate, Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Right? That there's a kingdom that he's brought and that he's establishing, but it's not of this world. And it, and it reveals to us like the approach that Jesus is taking, that he's not advocating for the overthrow of Rome and government, but that he is coming here to teach us all how to live within a governmental system whatever governmental system we're in, in such a way that the kingdom of God can still come. What is so interesting about all of this and the story of Jesus in the wilderness is that politically speaking, Jesus would have, man, he would have been in sharp opposition to the Roman Empire and everything it stood for. Like, absolutely. He would have been like, nope, not okay with that. Like, this barbaric, you know, sort of society and throwing away lives, like, like not okay, the oppression of people. He would, have, he would have been, politically speaking, in sharp opposition to them. He, I mean, remember, like, he's bringing a new kingdom. That's his purpose. So he's obviously establishing a kingdom that would have been in opposition to Rome anyway, an alternative kingdom that was not of this world, and yet instead of overthrowing Rome through military force, he teaches his followers how to thrive in the midst of an opposing culture. He teaches them how to bring the kingdom no matter where they live and no matter the political landscape. That's a big, big, big deal. And the reason why that matters is because like, we have to figure this out ourselves. Like, we have to understand the words of Jesus aren't just meant for 2,000 years ago, but they are meant to be, to be brought into our lives in the here and now. Like, we, too, have to figure this out, how to live in an environment that may be in opposition to, to some of our core values and beliefs as followers of Jesus, and understand that this is just, this is just part of what it is. 
That, that, that we are to live in this, these environments in such a way that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven can still come. Mark chapter 12, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and it says they came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, I mean, if Jesus is trying to overthrow Rome, like this isn't, this isn't what he would say. He's trying to help people understand that like he's bringing a kingdom that is not of this world and that those who are his followers are to live underneath the, 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 the power structure of wherever they live in such a way that the kingdom of God can still uh, manifest on earth. And even though he's bringing this alternative kingdom and he's recognized by his followers as Lord and Savior, which was language that was only ever reserved for Caesar, by the way, he's not calling for this all-out revolt against Rome. He tells his listeners to submit to the authorities and to pay their taxes. And then, and then Paul says these words in Romans 13. Paul says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist that have been established by God. And so here's a, here's a big thought if you're, if you're taking notes today, and I, I know some of this might be, you might need to chew on it for, for a little bit, but if you're taking notes, look at this thought. Christians are not called to change the world through political means. They are called to change the world by living so profoundly different than the world that those who are watching are moved toward them, not from them. Like that's, that's what it is right there. And this is what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about. This is what he's instructing them how to behave. He's telling them how to function. He's telling them how, how the church ought to, ought to behave in the midst of an environment that is not very conducive to their way, to their way of life, to their faith in Jesus. I mean, if you, if you read about the history of the church, like, like they have no political standing for the first 300 years of the church. And that is when the church expands like exponentially. You understand that like at the time of Jesus' death, like there's, there's like only a handful of Christians. 300 years later, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians, so much so that, that, uh, that it becomes the, the national or state religion of Rome. I think it was a political move by Constantine, but either way, like, like it, it becomes, it, Christianity had grown so much that it becomes recognized as like the state religion. Like that, I mean, Christianity explodes in the first three centuries in a time where they have no political standing and they're being persecuted for their faith. Because it's not what Jesus called his church to do, to go find, you know, a political platform. He called them to change the world by living so profoundly differently, different to the world that those who are watching how they're living their lives are moved towards them, not from them. And that's, that's what we're supposed to do. It's not that we don't have opinions. It's not that we don't vote our, our, our conscience and aren't are, are informed by, by the Bible and those decisions. 
but we're to live profoundly different. Peaceful and quiet lives, Paul says, and to pray for those in authority. The, Paul, the charge in, in 1 Timothy by Paul is to not change the culture. The charge is to make sure that the culture doesn't change them, to remain faithful to Jesus. So let me just give you a couple thoughts here as I get ready to wind down. Peace is not circumstantial. It is something found in Jesus that is supernatural and beyond our understanding that answers the ache and desire of our heart. Like this is what peace is. Something found in Jesus that is supernatural. Like it doesn't make sense. A supernatural peace that it's not, it's not uh, dependent upon everything breaking our way, everything going the way we need it to go in life, like there is this supernatural peace that comes through Jesus that allows us to still be at rest when maybe, maybe we shouldn't be in, you know, in, in, normal, in normal circumstances. There is a reality in the place and person of Jesus that transcends circumstances. Let me say that again. There is a reality in the place and person of Jesus that transcends circumstances. Did you know that that peace, like real peace, like the peace that comes from, from heaven, it is often the result of allowing ourselves to see things the way that Jesus does. Like it's one of the, it's one of the biggest challenges when it comes to being a Jesus follower is, is allowing yourself to see things the way Jesus does. Because when we, when we see things just with our natural vision, our natural eyes, like it, it becomes very easy for us to react. It becomes very easy for us to, 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 to kind of be filled with all of this turmoil one of, the, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to following Jesus is to, is to get his vision for things. It's to begin to see things the way that he does and to understand that in the midst of what we're facing, like he's not nervous, he's not unsure, he's calm, that Jesus is a non-anxious presence and he offers that to us as well. Peace comes by being with Jesus, being with him. But here's another thought. Peace is not circumstantial it is who you sit with, dwell with, submit to, and follow. Peace is a person. It's a person. It's a person. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but when your peace is circumstantial, you'll never be stable. Have you ever noticed that in your life? Have you ever gone through seasons of like where, where like until your circumstances changed, you just couldn't be at peace? Have you ever noticed that? And, and like, I think we all have. Like, we've all probably been there at times. Like, I, I know that, like, man, this is something we learn and grow in. But, but the reality is, is when that becomes your habit, where, where peace is only ever found when your circumstances shift and change, like, you will forever be unstable. You will just be blown and tossed by circumstance after circumstance. You, you, you will be unable to be anchored by the peace of Jesus in difficult circumstances. Peace is not circumstantial. Peace does not come through political means, through changing the world around us. You can change everything politically, and we would still have problems. We would still have problems. We would still be longing for peace. Paul also says these words, as I'm closing, you can go ahead and come up. He says we're to live quiet lives. We are to live quiet lives, peaceful lives and quiet lives. I love what he says to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, very similar language. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. 
Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Peaceful and quiet lives. In other words, Paul is saying like we don't let ourselves get drawn into the noise. He's saying we don't let ourselves get drawn into the vitriol. We don't, we don't do that. Like there's a different way. Like we still are after peace, but we're after it through, after it through a different means. Jesus tells us to not worry about all the things that everybody else worries about. Like, like I, I mean, that is, that is the, the, the challenge, isn't it? And it seems to be such a dominant message of Jesus is like to not, to not worry yourself with the things that everybody else worries about. He makes it so abundantly clear. I mean, in Matthew 6, like again in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says this, he said, these words that are so famous. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. All of these things like you worry about, all the things that, all the, he, 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 says, he says in, in, in uh, Matthew 5 or 6, to not run after the things that the pagans run after. So he's saying like, like don't worry about all these other things that, that, that people who don't follow Jesus are all caught up in. Don't, don't worry yourself with all of the dominant conversations people just, you know, they lose sleep over. He says, no, no, no. Like, worry yourself first. Like, center yourself first with the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So prioritize your life with the kingdom of God and what he wants to do in the world. Join yourself to the things he's up to. And then live a life that is, that is right before God. And when you do that, he says, he says, like, you'll be at peace. Like, the things that you worry about, he'll take care of. He'll take care of. It just seems like Jesus is so focused on, on us prioritizing his kingdom and, and our awareness of our Christian witness to the level that we just refuse to jeopardize it by like meaningless conversations, posts that do not matter, things that we can't take back. Like, like there is just this emphasis on prioritizing our Christian witness and refusing to jeopardize it, to live peaceful and quiet lives in environments that aren't necessarily conducive to the Christian life. It's like, that's all right. Did you know that, you know that the gospel does not require a Christian context in order to thrive? Did you know that? Do you know that there are all kinds of Christians who exist outside of the West in which, in which the gospel is thriving in ways like we could only dream about? Do you know that Christians in China and Christians in Iran, other places in the world, they are living peaceful and quiet lives. Like, they are living, you know, they're not, they're not like protesting government. They're living peaceful and quiet lives. They operate in the shadows where it is illegal for them to actually follow Jesus. And what's interesting is their ability to thrive is not dependent upon achieving political power. It's not. That's not what they're going after. They know that that will never happen, that they will never get political power. And yet the gospel still thrives. These are places I'm telling you about where revival is uncontrollable. Like the government cannot stop it. No matter how much they try to persecute the church and arrest people, like the, like the, 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 the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus just goes and goes and goes. And I mean, thousands of people every day coming to faith in Jesus in places where it's illegal to do so. 
people just operating a bit in the shadows, choosing to live peaceful and quiet lives, and the gospel thrives because they're not dependent upon political power. Paul's telling us that a quiet life, it's not disruptive. It's not angry. And that to live a peaceful and quiet life is to essentially be a blessing to your leaders, to be a blessing to your community. And that is really what it means to be like a follower of Jesus. Like that's what it really means to, to operate differently. It means to go after like real peace in our lives and in our community. Like we go after peace differently. We just do. We pray. We get on our knees. We seek God. We cry out. We ask for him to turn his face towards our lives and towards our nation and towards our communities. But in the meantime, we live peaceful and quiet lives. This is what Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus to do. And I think that we would be wise to, uh, to listen to these words, amen? Would you stand with me this morning? Why don't you bow your heads for a moment? You know, this uh, certainly wasn't an easy message to share and teach, and I know that it isn't even necessary, it's not necessarily an easy message to hear and to, and to, and to chew on. But I just want you to take a second and just say before the Lord, you know, to yourself right here, Holy Spirit, like, just come and do in me whatever you want to do in me. Everything that's been spoken today, just, just seal it deep in my heart and deep in my soul, the things that I'm supposed to, the things I'm supposed to latch onto and take with me today. Maybe you're here today and you just know that you've been living a life where your peace has been so radically disrupted and your circumstances have changed in such a way that like peace has been so difficult for you and, and uh, you, find, you find that, that your peace has been so circumstantial for, for so long and, and today is a day where you just really, you really need that to change. You need to, 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 to walk out of here with the peace of Christ reigning and ruling in your hearts. Can I just see your hand today? That's you today. Just need, need some prayer. Absolutely pray. Father, I thank you for uh, my brothers and sisters this morning under the sound of my voice, just feeling, uh, man, like things maybe are, are, are up in the air or, or things they don't maybe have all the answers for and they have found their peace disrupted by their circumstances. Lord, I thank you that, that your peace is supernatural, that it ministers to us and it comes to us in times that don't always make sense. I, I, I find it so amazing how two people can walk through identical circumstances and one has peace and one doesn't because of what you bring and because of what you offer, it is supernatural. It doesn't make sense to this world. And so I ask that you would minister this supernatural peace to every person under the sound of my voice in this room right now. All anxiety would go in Jesus' name. I thank you that you invite us, God, to be this non-anxious presence in the world. 
to trust in you, to see that your ways are, 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 are bigger than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that, that, that you know things we don't know, and so we submit control of our life to you right now, oh God. And maybe you're here today and you would just say, you know, Pastor Jordan, as you're talking, like, like you feel like maybe there have been times in, in, in recent days, recent weeks, recent months, where maybe your Christian witness has been jeopardized because of some things you've allowed yourself to get into, some conversations, some conflicts, some things that they're really at the end of the day aren't a, a fight and aren't a battle that you really need to be in. And you're just saying, I just need, I, I just need one, for the Lord to just bring his forgiveness, but also that he would just give me this newfound strength and resolve to fight the good fight, to remain faithful and loyal to Jesus and his gospel, and to just let all the noise around me to just sort of fade away. And you need to be somebody who walks out of here seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Could I just see you today, wherever you're at, that's you in this place today? And Father, we just ask right now for just uh, you to bring us into this place of our lives where your kingdom is what matters most, that we become consumed with you and who you are, that, that everything else just sort of fades away. Not that, not that the things of this world don't matter and not that the things that, that are on the news don't matter and that the issues of our day don't matter, but Lord, I pray all of that would be a distant, distant second, third, fourth, and fifth compared to, to uh, your kingdom and your righteousness that we are trying to just bring into our lives so we can be the people who actually bring hope, who actually bring a real kind of hope into this world, who actually bring a real kind of peace into this world, one that is not superficial, one that it does not just last for a moment, but one that solves the mystery of the universe, one that solves the mystery of humanity, that we could, that we could walk through this life and find hope for our soul, that, that you, God, would come on a mission to bring peace to this world, to bring peace to our lives. And so, Lord, I pray for a radical re reorienting of our focus today, that while we care about our world and we care about our country, that first and foremost, God, our priority is your kingdom and seeing it manifest itself, seeing it establish itself in the here and now. There is none like you. There is none greater than you. We submit ourselves to you. We submit our emotions to you, oh God. We submit our mouth to you. All the words that come out of our mouth, oh God, may they be pleasing to you, oh Jesus. Form us and shape us and make us into the people who can make you look good to a world that is desperate right now, to a world that is looking for hope and peace. May you form us into the people that make Jesus look good to the world, oh God. And we just, we, just, we just repent. We ask for forgiveness for areas, God, where we haven't shown up well, where we haven't shown up well, where we've damaged the name of Jesus. And we just say, God, come and do a fresh new work in us. And may we walk out of here, God, as a non-anxious presence, as a non-anxious people who just know that you you hold this world in the palm of your hand, that you're on the move, and that you wanna use us to bring your thoughts and ideas and plans to the earth. And so whatever it takes, do it through us, God. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.